Oh, All yeah, right, yeah. so we're back to Cracks in Postmodernity with a very special guest, Andre Asuman. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. So, um, so no, I'll start by saying, you know, I, like many others, discovered your work through Call Me By Your Name. Um, when I saw the trailer first, I decided that I had to read the book before seeing the movie. So I quickly got a copy, read through it all in just a couple of days. But after reading it, I decided that I needed to read more of your books because of how profound Call Me By Your Name was. So I would want to start with Out of Egypt, since that was your first book, uh, your memoir about your upbringing in Egypt. So can you, can you talk a little bit first about your ethnic background and the mix of ethnic groups that you lived amongst at that time in Egypt? Yeah. Um, um, Egypt, at the time that I was growing up, we're talking about the 50s and the very early 60s, was fast becoming an Egyptian city. In other words, populated by people who, for whom Arabic is the dominant language, which makes perfect sense because it wasn't an Arab-speaking country. But where I was living, and in Alexandria in particular, it had become a heavily Europeanized city. Mm -hmm. Many Europeans, not all of them from the um, what you might call the upper echelons. Many of them were workers, but you had Greeks, Armenians, Lebanese, Syrians mm -hmm. living there, Turks. I'm part of the Turkish uh, sort of diaspora, if you want to call it. Mm -hmm. um, but they were Italians. They were French, of course, and of, and ultimately Brits, because uh, Egypt was in an Egyptian colony. But the dominant language was French. So you'd go in any store and you would speak in French and everybody understood French. Um, which is ironic because though it belonged to England, French had become the dominant culture. And uh, in other words, the Comédie Française, which is the sort of national theater's um, company of France, used to come every year. The ballet used to come every year. And we had a Grand Slam event every year in Egypt. Uh, where basically anybody who was interested in tennis could go and see and just watch the game. You had world-class champions coming to Alexandria. So it was a very Europeanized city. And uh, in many respects, we never thought that this was going to change. It did change, however, after 1956, when the Egyptian government nationalized the Suez Canal. In other words, the Brits had basically commissioned it, they had invested in it, the French had played, paid a lot of money in it, and of course the Egyptians felt that it was in their territory and they should take it. How legitimate that is is a different question that I would never understand and I don't want to get into. But it meant that after 1946, when Brits uh, and the French have declared war on Egypt, all French citizens and all English citizens were basically expelled right away. It so happens that also Jews were affected and I'll stop here because Israel had also joined France and Germany and England to attack Egypt. And therefore all Jews were menaced. Many were kicked out mm -hmm. and eventually all of them left. All Jews left Egypt. It became basically a Judenrein kind of country where there are no Jews left or three or four at most in Cairo and in Alexandria. Mm -hmm. So, so that's where that comes from. Okay, so and you you said that the the kind of dominant language was French yes. at the time. So uh, how many languages did you speak growing up exactly? Well, you spoke French at home. 
uh, you spoke Arabic on the street because everybody understood Arabic. It, you know, that was a dumb. So I spoke Arabic. I studied Arabic at school. Um, in, I went to British schools, so I had to learn English as a as an acquired language. Mm-hmm. And I knew Italian already, and uh, many of my friends were Greeks, so we spoke in Greek. Wow. Uh, so it was a very multicultural country. Uh, it doesn't mean that, unlike the United States, every group did not necessarily like the others, but they knew they had to cohabit together. Mm. And so they did the best they could. And eventually everybody lived together quite well, I have to say. Although there were suspicions, you know, they are Greeks, they're not like us, they're Italian, they're not like us, that sort of thing. But that's not unusual in the rest of the world. Of course. No, and it's interesting because etymology, word roots play a big role in a lot of your writing. So, I mean, those who know Call Me By Your Name, there's the scene with the, you know, the etymology of apricot. But one from out of Egypt that I found interesting, I, I believe it was a Passover Seder where there were both Jewish and non-Jewish family members sitting around the table. And there was a Greek Orthodox family member who said amen at the end of the Haggadah. And I think everyone looked at her and she was saying, you know, it's amen means the same thing in both the Christian and Jewish context. And then this launches a theological kind of debate about, you know, do we all worship the same God or not? Um, so no, but I, and then there's, I think following that scene, you talked about going into the, the Greek Orthodox church to light a candle with her. So yeah. now I'm just, I'm curious to know more about, um, the fact that you're in such a spiritually religious diverse area growing up, how did that kind of shape your sense of self, your sense of reality being exposed to all of that? <laughs> well, what it does mean in my case, because I was exposed and basically, I went to church, I went to synagogue, I went to, I, I don't think I ever went into a, but I did enter, of course, um, a Muslim, uh, Muslim temple, mosque, yeah. because I had to take my shoes off. Uh, but you did this with total tolerance, in my particular case, not because I was tolerant, but because I didn't believe in any of it. Mm-hmm. I had no patience for religion, and I still have remained that way. I hate religions. Uh, so I have no, uh, I'm a lapsed Jew. I never wanted to have, I never learned a single prayer from Judaism. I didn't care to know it. I know the Our Father because that's what I was taught, yeah. uh, which is a Christian uh, prayer, uh, but it doesn't matter. I don't care for any of it. Um, in many cases, people were religious. My family was very orthodox in certain parts of it, not all mm-hmm. of it was. And, and, but basically i wasn't my father certainly wasn't my mother pretended to be but she wasn't and um, and my grandparents were somewhat religious but i don't know how religious they were they never discussed it mm-hmm. uh, they just went through the rituals and i just hated it but i mean it was a is a universe alexandria in particular in those years where all religions cohabited also in other words your friends were Greek Orthodox, they were Italian Catholics, you understood what they believed in, they understood what you believed in, and so on and so forth. Mm. And it's interesting, though, just considering like the title of the book itself, Out of Egypt, which, you know, you see that in the prophet Hosea and the Hebrew scriptures, and within the Jewish context, referring to, you know, the Jewish exodus coming out of Egypt. In a Christian context, you can talk about, you know, Jesus's exile into Egypt. 
Right. Um, so whether you're looking at it spiritually, historically, it's a very charged kind of phrase, the title. Um, but I'm wondering to what extent does your experience of leaving Egypt, going out of Egypt, resonate with these larger spiritual or historical contexts of that phrase? Well, I mean, for us in particular, in my family and myself included, uh, it was totally ironic. Here we are about to leave Egypt, which is the ultimate Jewish ritual, leaving Egypt, finding liberation once you leave Egypt. We didn't want to leave Egypt. We mm -hmm. were very happy and very content to live the kind of life we had led in Egypt. So were my parents. My mother never worked. She liked her friends. She would visit people. My father lived a rather secular life uh, with various mistresses, which is a known fact. I've never made a secret of it. And um, so there was, they were content. They were wealthy. So they, they, what's to give up? What's, what's better than this? Eventually, we were kicked out. In other words, the choice was taken away from us. And uh, I don't think we've, my father certainly never recovered. And I sort of have turned to writing, but usually about loss. Mm -hmm. And that has been sort of the dominant key in which most of the things I write. There's always an expectation or a remembrance of a loss that has bruised us permanently. Yeah, I mean, I think that's clear, both in the fiction and the nonfiction, this sense of longing for something yearning, but, and yet, we recognize its absence, there's something lacking, you know, that's, that's something I, I want to get on to a little bit later. Okay. But I did want to mention, so after Out of Egypt, I went to read your collection of essays, Alibis. Um, and I noticed how much the themes of memory and desire, but also presence and absence pervade so much of your writing. Um, and I couldn't help but discern perhaps a kind of platonic or maybe an Augustinian influence there. There's definitely a lot of philosophical threads going through there. So can you talk a little bit more about whatever philosophical influences or other, I don't know, sources that helped you to understand the themes of memory, desire, presence, absence, longing, lack, etc.? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, you're right that talking about Plato is particularly influential, has been. But I don't know that um, I have ever found a philosopher who has allowed me to reconcile uh, what I lived through with the larger context of what, how I could sort of work it out on paper, as it were. Um, usually I find that fiction allows me to do that far better than amusing in an essay. I love writing essays because my essays permit me to explore things, but they don't permit me to close the issue. Whereas fiction allows me to find some sort of temporary and ephemeral closure, which is why I always end up writing the same book differently each mm. and every time. Uh, I'm willing to concede that point, uh, but it, it, it remains that philosophically, I am very much, I, oh, you mentioned Augustine. That is very much a present form, particularly the way Augustine was received in say the early Renaissance and the later Renaissance. In other words, this Augustinian thread of everything you want, you will stop wanting once you get it and will be disappointed. Mm -hmm. Everything you believe in, so long as it's sort of long for, allows you to live through it. But once you get it, if you are damned to get it, you will be thoroughly disappointed. So put it basically, keep holding it off, which is why 
in one of the ways in which I work this is with the tenses. You know, we look back in the past to find something. We look into the future. We look into the future to look back into the present that we are living right now and so on and so forth because we fundamentally destabilized. And as I like to say, sort of deracinated from our roots. We don't have roots. We think we do. And uh, one of the things that has basically spoken to a lot of people, particularly young people, is that the, 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 however much we believe in what life holds as a promise, we're also smart enough to know that it is a basically fiction that we're longing for, that it is very nebulous and that we maybe should not try to get there because we will be disappointed. Uh, there's that sense that we are not able to live and experience the present. And I always make fun. Sorry if I'm going on. But no, I, no, I mean, it definitely, what I'm hearing, definitely that Augustinian sense of restlessness, the restlessness of the heart, you know, always longing for more. And there is a line that really stood out to me in alibis where you say memory is a form of numbness that cheats the senses. You feel neither sorrow nor joy. You feel that you're feeling nothing. And I mean, it's, it's interesting because, you know, it, that resonates with what you're saying now, but it's also when you write about memories, it's so full of these palpable evolutions, these sensations. So it's, I wonder, can memory be both something full and empty at the same time? Like, can it be this paradoxical kind of coexistence? I don't know about memory itself. I do know that writing about memory or writing memories allows the memory to basically hold space that it doesn't have in real life. Mm -hmm. uh, so you write, in my case, and in many other writers, you write a long sentence about something you remember, the sensual aspect of it, the plenitude that you feel when, uh, with, that you have felt allegedly in the past, that sense of, wow, this was fantastic. When you write it, you extend it, you elaborate it, you give it a scope that in real life it doesn't have. And that is the richness of writing. And in a sense, I'm not making it up that I have become a writer because writing allows me to inhabit a universe where pleasure is possible so long as you describe it in an extensive in an extensive manner. Uh, mm. So basically writing for me is like a home. It is better than a home. It gives me a sense of permanence where I don't have permanence in real life. I'm aware that there are dangers outside, there are dangers within as well. And, uh, and so I'm aware that the people that you love, you may no longer love and they may no longer love you. Or one day they love you and one day they don't. But on paper, even when you have doubts about it, the extrapolation of the doubt that you hold vis-a-vis -vis others is wonderful. It mm -hmm. gives you a sense of pleasure that you don't have in real life. So, I mean, it sounds like you're saying there's something about the written word that allows this memory to remain, I don't know, remain something present or for that desire to reach, if not an ultimate fulfillment, like the desire isn't totally, you know, eliminated or dissolved through the power of the written word. Like no, 
but I think the sense of numbness mm. that I feel for so many things. I feel numb. I mean, I, I know better not to say that I feel numb and mm. I force myself not to feel numb. It's like when you watch a third grade movie on a night where you're extenuated and you're troubled, you just don't want to, you want to see something stupid. Yeah. You know it's stupid, but you're enjoying it in a manner of speech. Sure. That's how numbness is for me. In other words, um, I recognize it, I will live through it, but on paper, that numbness itself can have an underside okay. that you never expected to find, and yet it has. Gee, I feel numb. I remember the numbness that I felt that day. It was on a beautiful spring day, and she was beautiful, or he was handsome, whatever you want, and blah, 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 and suddenly the numbness that you're describing begins to acquire a voice. Hmm. Okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah. No, and it's uh, the other major theme that we see in alibis, but again, in most of your other work is the significance of place of cities of a location, especially considering, you know, you moved around from place to place in your childhood, you visited places in your adulthood. Um, so what role does place does physical location play in shaping our desire and our sense of identity? Our sense of identity, I don't think, is defined by place. Mm -hmm. um, most of our lives are spent with other people. And I think and other people do have a, they contribute, let's say. They don't define you, but they contribute to your definition of who you are. You define yourself vis-a-vis -vis or in opposition to other people. Um, mm -hmm. At least I do. Um, you know, I hate his features, you know, I don't like him, etc, etc. I like myself better. I'm much better than that. You, yeah. you use the other person as a foil in order to define yourself. Place doesn't do it for me. I have loved certain places and I go back to them all the time, but I don't find that they help me define myself. Uh, even acquiring and going to a place whose language I know and is not English, you know, yeah, I can understand enjoying speaking that language, but it doesn't do anything to the me who's me. Uh, in fact, there is no me who's me because the me who's me is changing every single day. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't find that uh, place is that important. I can claim, and if you want me to, I will say so, but I won't believe it, that place is important to my experience of life since place has defined in many respects, you know, what happened to me. Mm -hmm. But has it contributed to me? No, I don't think so. I've lived in Italy for quite a few years. Did I love it? No. I lived in France. Did I love it? No, not really. I live in the States for about 50 years. Mm. Am I American? I doubt it. I am a New Yorker. That's obvious. Oh, that's what I was going to say. A New Yorker, you know, yeah. it's not difficult to be a New Yorker. Well, you write about New York with such vivid emotions. So, I, I mean, I can't help but feel like New York is significant for you in some way, or it's impacted you in some way. So what is it about the city that's, uh, that speaks to you so much? I don't know if it's the city itself. It's, uh, for example, I go into Central Park every day, at least mm -hmm. twice. Um, do I like Central Park? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, does it remind me of the country? It does, especially when I don't see the buildings around it. 
Do I like the countryside? Absolutely not. Okay. People think I love the beach. I can only stand the beach for about 15 minutes. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and and I because I get sunburned, I get bored, I have nothing to do. I can't read at the beach. I'll fall asleep. Do I do I like listening to people near me talking and chit-chatting and listening to their radio? I find it detestable. So I don't like the beach. I like it for a few minutes when I jump in the water and then I'm bored. Mm-hmm. And I want to go back home. And when I go back home, what do I want to do? I want to sit in front of my computer and work. Mm. I can do that for many hours, the beach and the Central Park, you know, a good hour of walk in Central Park. Yeah. What I like about New York, I don't know. I don't even know that I like New York. But I've lived here and it's so easy to say, I love New York, Mm. you know, to claim that you belong here. I, I, those are words. They're, they're not good enough for me. I mean, what I, the, what I sense when I read your writing about New York City, there's this fluidity about the interactions, about the things that go on, people's experiences. And I think that does overlap with, again, the fluidity of desire in your writing. I don't know. I, mean, I That's what I perceive. I don't know if there's anything intentional about it or if you see that. Well, it's it's what you might call the edge in my writing. Mm-hmm. And the edge is basically about desire. Yeah. Um, it is desire for other people. It is desire for something better than what is ordinarily given to us. Um, I don't know what that is, to be honest, but I know that I long for things. I'm looking for something. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm looking for someone or I'm looking for something. I will never know. Because when I meet someone, I find them actually not that interesting, especially if we're having coffee together. After a while, okay, this has been nice. Thank you. Goodbye. Uh, But uh, that something else, I don't know what it is. So uh, I don't know how to answer the question, you know, because there's Mm -hmm. obviously some desire animating. Otherwise, I wouldn't go out. Uh, And I hope that it on the day that I die, I will still have desire. Mm. But at the same time, I, I, I hope that doesn't happen, that I will lose desire. Because once you lose desire, what else is there? There's even the desire to, to find comfort in work goes too, I, 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 was be, I have been told. So if that happens, yeah. I might as well not live. But mm. I like the fact that I will look at somebody walking by and I will say, hmm, I desire that person. Yeah. And just desiring sometimes the admission of desire, whether it is fulfilled or not, is just a beautiful moment. Mm, interesting. So the beauty of desire itself. Um, so I mean, speaking of, I, I want to move on to Call Me By Your Name. So just the title itself. Can you say a little bit about that title? <laughs> yes. I've gone public with the title um, because I used to know two women who were partners and uh, and they had the same name. Mm. So I, I once asked my wife, I said, you know, when they make love and they speak each other's names while they're making love, do you think there is a confusion between them? You know, when one calls the other, is she or using her name or the other person's name? Mm. And I loved the idea because it gave a certain dimension that I had never 
I had never even, it had never crossed my mind, but it came to me through comedy uh, because I was making fun of it. Yeah. But then I realized, wait a second, if you call somebody by your name and they call you by theirs, then in essence, you are exchanging, swapping identities. And if you swap an identity, even for that brief moment of lovemaking, then you have become the other person and the other person has become you. And isn't that the richest thing that planet Earth can give us? Mm. I'm not even an idealist because I'm full of cynicism too. Yeah. But I think that that moment of absolute identity swapping is the price, most priceless thing on Earth. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that I think is really salient in Enigma Variations. I mean, that sense of wanting to become one with the identity of the other or to have this total exchange between the two you know um and i mean I, the other thing some people say that there is perhaps i don't know intentional or unintentional allusion to i think it's isaiah um it's i mean the wording's a little bit different is there any connection there or is that just a random uh, i don't think that the isaiah uses that it is my favorite book of the bible by the yeah. way the first Isaiah, especially, uh, but I'm I'm not sure. I don't remember running into something like mm -hmm. that. Yeah, I maybe I, I maybe have to look it up again, see if I can find it. Yeah, yeah. So no, I mean, just now I want to talk a little bit more about Elio's character because one of the things that if you only watch the movie and don't read the book, you don't see how much. Um, his internal monologues, his self-reflection. Okay. It's, I mean, that to me is what I enjoyed most about the book, that this person drives himself crazy analyzing all the minutiae of his memories, of his desires. Um, he's so aware, so conscious of his experience of longing, how palpable this, uh, this the desires are. Um, Tell, tell me more about that. I'm, I've always been curious to understand how is Elio like this? How is he so aware of himself? Uh, I was always like that. Mm -hmm. I've always been aware of myself. And I think we are all of us the same way. Uh, we may not want to admit it, but we, when we desire someone, male or female, we are in essence fantasizing of touching them, of, uh, I, I remember a guy in class one day turned to a girl sitting next to him and licked her arm mm -hmm. because he had, I said, what are you doing? <laughs> I've wanted to do this all my life. And she didn't seem that shocked. Okay. But <laughs> really, this is what he was cradling in his soul. He wanted to lick her arm and shoulder. Uh, but I think we all go through this. And essentially when we want to sleep with someone, we are combated by desire, which is raw and frank, and there are no secrets. And at the same time, we know that it's going to be very difficult to attain that goal. And so we try to disparage them at the same time that we desire them. And I think that Elio does this constantly. He's constantly longing for this other person, examining every part of his body that he can see to the point that his uh, arm is not as tanned as his outer arm. Mm -hmm. but, and he's thinking of lizards, you know, and he's looking at his chin and then saying, 
gee, the chin looks very much like the heel of his foot. Mm. And clearly he's just fantasizing, examining this other person and examining because he cannot touch him. He cannot bring himself to touch. He is not allowed to, he feels to touch. And he can see in the other's gaze, a sort of repulsion, almost a kind of chilling um, look that is forbidding for him. And, and so he knows to behave and he has to behave. He has no secret about desiring Oliver from page one. I didn't want that to be sort of the creeping recognition that we have desire and so on and so on. I just wanted to lay it out outside from the very beginning. Uh, but he's, it's difficult to do. And when he does make his fundamental confession, he says absolutely nothing. He does not say, I desire you, or I love you, or I want your body at night. None of that happens. He just speaks very, very generically. And the other person intercepts what the underlying theme of that conversation is. And so the other person is also the one who says, we must never speak about those things again. What are those things that they were talking about? We don't know because we haven't been told, but they know. Yeah. And, and I think there are fantasies, moments of fantasy in Elio's uh, behavior towards Oliver, where he wants him to come into his room at night and in fact almost feels that he has come into his room at night and they're lying naked and he's on top of him and he's imagining this, grotesquely imagining because he's going into all kinds of details, which is what we all do. And hopefully we continue to do until we die when we long for something. We don't think of clean things, but we want to go as, as, as precisely as possible and what it is we want from this other person. How is this other person going to make love to us? Mm. Yeah, and uh, one of the things that does not appear in the book, but I think they added into the movie at the very end, after he gets off the phone with Oliver, you know, he finds out about the marriage. Oh, yeah. And he's staring into the fire and starts oh, yeah. crying on the credits roll. Um, yeah. I mean, that was an interesting addition because I think what I'm imagining in this moment is that he realizes that this this flame of love, this desire, it's yeah. its limited, it's finite, it, um, it can burn you. Um, and that as much as the desire can consume you and possesses you, that it's impossible to fully possess the object of your desire, the other person. But at the same time, as much as that fire burns you, that realization is painful, the fact that the, the desire remains like, there's that itself to me it was like a sign of hope that he's looking into this flame which burns him but it's also a light it's something that continues to goad him on um even though he's lost oliver so i'm just wondering for you like the fact that we continue to, to desire things despite losing what we want despite losing the object do you think that's a reason to have hope is that a positive thing uh i think we should always have hope in my own life experience, running into someone that you loved once upon a time, many years, many, many years in my case, because I have many years behind me, uh, it's not always pleasurable. Mm -hmm. It is nice to find out that there is a lingering friendship going on, sweet, uh, 
but the desire is not there and the intimacy is not there. We can speak very frankly to each other about who we were back then, what we wanted, mm -hmm. what we got, what we didn't get. Um, but by and large, I think that the future truncates something. I, I do think that in Elio and Oliver's case, I wanted to see them get back together, which I, I did in, in a different book. And I, I thought that there was hope there. There was something that allowed them to build, uh, even after many years, to rebuild what they had. Um, I hate the idea that something so powerful as what they had should just peter away. Mm -hmm. In my life, it has. Uh, on the other hand, you know, some people that I've longed for and had in the past, I have never met them again. So I have no idea what we would be doing together many years later. I don't think we would. But there's always that hope. And I think you're right. When he looks into the fire, he begins to weep a tiny bit. Mm -hmm. But he's also smiling. If you look at his face, I've seen that scene too many times. I, think, <laughs> I can imagine, you know. But he's also—he's not unhappy. No. He understands. It's not—he's not sort of putting the kibosh on it. But at the same time, he realizes that, however wonderful it was, it may not last out in time. Right? Uh, it could, and there is a sense of what I like to call plenitude as he's watched, because what happens at the very, very end, he hears his mother calling him, Elio, and he yeah. turns around, and then the movie ends. And at that point, you can have a sense that he still has his family, he still has love around him. Uh, it may not last, as we will find later on, but there's something wonderful in, in the fact that this young man has encountered love and is ready to move on in love. No, and I forgot that part that at the very end, his mother calls his name. So it's, yeah. again, this sense that even though you lose the for the person who first kind of awoke your desire, yeah. someone continues to call you, like you're, you're still desired by someone, yeah. even if it's just your mother or your family. Yeah, um, yeah and I, I see how a lot of the themes are, you know, continued into Enigma Variations, which I have to say that's my favorite of the novels um, and explored in, in different ways, of course. Um, so yeah, what I would really stands out to me in Enigma Variations is how you portray desire and identity as being enshrouded in this sense of mystery that we're always in this kind of fluid state of tension between desire and its consummation. Um, so like one of the images you use about the bridge. So one of the characters oh. says, they're longing not to be on one side of the bridge or the other, but in between walking on the bridge. So that that space in between of of mystery of being suspended in the tension of desire. Um, also, the, the like I said before, the desire for unity, oneness to possess, to be uh, to consummate the desire for the other. Um, and like a lot of the, the erotic scenes in the in the book evoke a sense of consuming and being consumed by the other, becoming totally one, this exchange of identity, as you said. Um, and there's a frequent reference to wanting to see the other's face during intercourse. Um, so I wanted to ask you about that, like what's significant about the face of the other? What does their face reveal to us about our desire or what we want? Oh, God. Um... 
I'm going to try to answer this question okay. as candidly as I can, but at the same time, it has to be shrouded somewhat. Okay. I like to look at somebody's face when I make love to them because um, I want them, I mean, a lot of, some of the women I've known in my life shut their eyes. Mm. And I find that is almost solitary. It makes me feel very alone. Uh, as Chloe will say to the young man when they have they make love after many years, after four years of being in college together, she says, look at me. I want you basically to look at me when you reach orgasm because I want to see it in your eyes. I, because that becomes an important moment. If you shut your eyes or you look elsewhere or you're not focused, then you're not making love to me. You're making love to either somebody else, you're making love to the ceiling, to whatever it is, but not with me. And, and I, I think that um, the, the glance is a very important moment in, in lovemaking because otherwise, um, yes, in a moment of passion, we may want to shut our eyes and whatever, but the presence of the other person is important. Otherwise, they're not there for you. You're not there for them. And what are you doing together? Uh, oh, you're having sex. Well, that's not making love. Yeah, and it's also interesting is if you juxtapose this, this desire to see the face of the other uh, in that moment with Elio looking into the flame in the movie version, it just made me think how the face of the other is, it's elusive. It can, can burn us even. I don't know. I just, I thought there was a little bit of a connection there. There must, be, there must be, there must be a connection, but um, no, I, I don't want to repeat myself, but fundamentally um, looking into somebody else's eyes is a tremendous moment because it also means that you have reached a point and that's where I was headed. You have reached a point where you are no longer embarrassed of looking at the other person mm. because there is a kind of, I don't, I don't want to stare at you. You know, I, I don't want to be this impolite, you know, I, I don't want to invade you. But the point is that you do want to invade the other person and you want the other person to invade you. And mm -hmm. it's when you can't look at somebody else's face, it's that you don't want to look at them. That has happened to me in my life as well. Yeah. I will stay alone. <laughs> <laughs> No, and the, another thing that stood out is the the question that keeps appearing throughout the book, are you happy? Um, and there's a point where the main character says, you know, happiness is a foreign country, which for me evoked the image of first, at first of the bridge, you know, not being here or there, you're being somewhere in between. But it's also reminiscent about it, Egypt, this experience of exile. Um, so I'm curious for you, like when you were in Egypt before having to move to all these other countries, what was happiness for you then? Oh God, I don't know. I don't know if there was any happiness. I mean, mm -hmm. yeah, there were moments of, of joy, you might call, but I don't think I've ever felt sort of this rebounding happiness that sort of allows you to feel good. Today, I've had a great day. I've never said that in my whole life uh, because among other reasons, I'm superstitious. So that I won't allow myself to say that, but it happens that uh, the experience of exile for me is, is important because it means that you are not in your country, but your country was never yours to begin with. Condition of exile 
when you are exiled, it assumes that you have a home from which you are no longer allowed to go back to. Egypt was never my home. I knew this from get-go. So when I left Egypt, I was leaving something that felt like home, but it wasn't my homeland. Mm -hmm. And I was going to another place that was clearly not my home. I was Italian, I was an Italian citizen, but my father had basically, I don't know how he obtained Italian citizenship. It was a bit of a reach as it were. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I never felt Italian. And I was going to Italy as if that were my homeland. So no home is a homeland which is the image that you evoke of the bridge, which I intentionally threw in there, yeah. is that you, you're no longer in Brooklyn staring at Manhattan, or you're no longer in Manhattan staring at Brooklyn. Your home is somewhere in between, but there is no land in between. Mm -hmm. uh, but you feel that neither one is home, but you basically, it's the, the transit, as I called it, between the two that is really your home. And the transit exists, in my case, just on paper. It is what paper allows me to have that land does not offer. Mm. So uh, the other thing that I, I get the sense that desire in your work, it's always intertwined in some way with violence or with death. Um, so on one hand, desire can lead to this violence or harm against the other. So you see Oliver struggling with this question of, you know, should I reveal to Elio that I have this desire for him? You know, am I going to hurt him? Am I going to take advantage of him, especially considering the, the age gap? Um, on the other hand, there's the death to self, the violence to the self in allowing yourself to kind of give yourself to the other. Um, so in Enigma Variations, there is there's a line where um, a character who's married with a child says, you know, I no, no longer belong to myself. I belong to my child, my husband, my home. So it's, again, like losing yourself, saying yes to this other, giving yourself to the other. Um, so I don't know, in what sense do desire and death, desire and even violence coexist with each other? I don't know. I, I don't know if this is a fair question because I don't think that there is violence in my world. Yeah. Okay. Unless you see it, unless you see it, or you extrapolate it, uh, I have never liked violence. Uh, I, mean, I, I, I don't commit violence. I, I, no violence has been committed on me yet, mm -hmm. so uh, I hope it never does. So I'm, I'm kind of foreign to that concept. But I do know that to give yourself over to an experience um, requires you to cross certain boundaries that exist whatever and mm -hmm. in, in enigma variations the the crossing of the band of course the bridge again becomes it and i wanted by the way i quoted uh hart crane's the bridge in that particular description of the of the bridge so yeah. i knew what i was doing but it is i mean if, if you have gay tendencies and you haven't explored them going over that crossing that bridge is itself quite a daring and bold act it might be an act, an act of violence against yourself. I don't know. But it means that you are risking something. A risk, yeah. I think and, that's a good way to put it, yeah. Yeah, and the risk exists when you have a, a sort of a hetero relationship because going over into somebody else's home, and think of it, you enter somebody's home for the first time, you know you're going to have sex. Um, it, do you feel that comfortable? I don't think anybody feels comfortable. 
Mm. So there's a sense that where is the other door that I will have to leave from once this is done? You know, there are all kinds of things cross your mind. Yeah, and then I would ask, if not like actual violence in a literal sense, yeah. what do you say about the potential of desire to hurt the other, at least emotionally, or oh. you know, in that in that way? I don't know. Uh, that, that's a good question. It's a fair question. Mm -hmm. um, people have hurt me, mm -hmm. but I never went into a relationship in order not to get hurt. In other words, I have never said no to a relationship or to even a one night uh, thinking that, oh, I might get hurt. No, I've never done that. I've always gone through. In other words, yes, go for it, see what happens. And I assume that the other person has basically made the same decision. Yes, I have hurt some people, I know that. But that was part of, there was no dishonesty on my part. At least I think so. Uh, nor did I lead them on into thinking that there was more than what I was willing to offer. So by and large, yes, there are risks. One does get hurt emotionally, but this is what happens in a modern society. You know, you have more than one partner in life and, uh, and you know there's a risk. That is a given. Yeah, so again, that sense of risk that's implied in desire. We know it's there, you know, we know it's inevitable. Um, but yeah, I mean, so on a more personal note, what I appreciate most about all the stuff that I've read from you is that you really look at desire head on and dare to, to allow it to go to its ultimate fringes without censoring it to go to its ultimate length. And I just, I see that just to be such a contrast against what I see so many other people do in the world. Um, I think people are afraid of their desires, so they're inclined to reel it in, to cover it up, to censor it, either because of the fear of that risk, as you said, that it's going to be painful, that it's going to hurt me, or that it's going to lead me into trouble, that it's going to lead to destruction. Um, so I don't know, why, why are so many of us afraid to desire, why this need to censor, to, to hold it in, to mask it? I don't know. I don't know that there's a why. Uh, first of all, let's begin with this. Uh, most people I have found uh, are not that honest with themselves. Mm. In other words, they know that they have a desire, but at the same time, they want to consider it pass uh, sort of transitory. It's, it's not going to last, so why take it seriously and so on. Or secondly, you have that the other person is in fact in another relationship. And you know that it would be a waste of your time and you will be humiliated in, in addition to everything if you cross that line. You know that they're, they're very happy. And nobody is that happy as they claim, but they're happy enough that you know you will introduce an aspect that might even ruin your friendship with them. So you don't do it. Uh, these are some of the boundaries that we live with. But by and large, I find that, and I say this without any sort of vanity, is that every time I have said something that is almost outlandish, 
in my description. Of course, at the same time that I'm outlandish, I'm also extremely tactful and very graceful in what I write and how I write. So the one is covering up the other, but the fact that I'm bold enough to say what I'm saying is still there. Um, I find that a lot of people will end up saying, oh, that's exactly how I feel. Mm -hmm. That's what goes on in my mind when I desire somebody else. I have the same fears and I have the same exact fantasies. And, and so I, I, I always liked what Jesus said, which was amazing. You know, like, if you are without that sin, throw the first stone at me. Mm -hmm. And nobody has yet thrown a stone at me because <laughs> of that, because essentially everything I say is universal. Everybody mm -hmm. Uh, one of the things that I like to say to a lot of my male friends is that there's not a single person on planet Earth who has not had a homosexual longing. It's just not possible. And, and of course, when I say this, they say, well, you know, when I was younger, blah, blah, blah. They, they give you that kind of explanation. But the fact is that everybody desires people of their own sex. There's not a single exception. But people don't want to say that. Mm -hmm. When I say it, they sort of become, they come closer to me and they feel, oh yeah, well, yes, sometimes I too. That sort of admission. Mm -hmm. And I write the same thing about a city like Rome. Rome means something to me. I still haven't elaborated what it does, but it means something to me. But it's a very personal Rome. But when I describe my Rome, everybody writes to me and says, oh, I know the same Rome. I have the same exact feeling. Mm -hmm. So why didn't you say it first? I say, it's because they have had the same idea, but it's never been considered enough for them to dwell on it as I do. Hmm. Okay, so first then let me ask, when you say that, okay, everybody has at some point had some kind of desire for people of the same sex. Right what do you make of these kind of hardline categories that are so common today that you know you're either this or you're that you're you know do you think it accurately depicts human desire or or is it just i don't know is it irrelevant i don't know i i i, I cannot say this because my experience has been both are the same and my characters all my characters are basically bisexual Mm -hmm. They go one way and the other, both. And they have strong feelings in both cases. Some people believe that they can only have sexual desire for their own sex, or some people believe that they can only have for the opposite sex. Mm -hmm. Am I going to argue and tell them that they're wrong or right? I don't know. I know what I feel. Yeah. And I know that most people agree with me. Yeah. With reluctance. With reluctance. But that's, mm -hmm. that's a fact of life. Uh, so I, I don't think that there's any hard line here, you know, this or that. It's everybody is, has their own ideas and their own security mm -hmm. that they feel they need to have. So there's nothing I can do about that. What I feel is one thing, and that's what I describe in my writing. Yeah, so I do have one final question just to wrap things up. Um, I see... In, you know, like I said, in Call Me and Enigma Variations, as well as in Alibis, this sense that desire 
entail some kind of call. So a call from some entity outside of me. So when we desire, you know, something is calling my name. And then it gives me the sense that in a way, desire constitutes my identity, constitutes who, who I am. Again, it's this is my name that's being called. Right. Um, and one of my favorite lines from alibis, so you say, well, these two questions you, come, you have, it's first, what's in me that keeps wanting something out there? And then what's out there that keeps beckoning something in me? So again, there's something beyond me that's beckoning me, calling me. Um, have you come to any conclusions with these questions? Have you gotten anywhere with that? No, I'm afraid not. I'm afraid that I cannot conclude that because if I have the answer to that particular question, mm -hmm. I should stop writing. Uh, I, I write in order to understand or to imagine what the possible answer is each time. And each day changes, of course. Uh, but there is something in me that wants something outside of the world. And we started with that. You know, I, I walk in New York and I want something from New York, but I don't know what it is. And then, you know, I, there's something about New York, a building in New York that says, come live me with me in that house. You know, I want you in this building, which happened to me once upon a time where I used to walk down the street and there was a particular building that used to summon me. And ironically, eventually I found a listing for an apartment in that building. And of course, I was extremely happy to live there. I had fulfilled my longing to be in that very building, a fantasy come true. So in a sense that, that, that something outside was beckoning me, but it could be somebody else too. Somebody who, who sort of gives me the look. Uh, of course, it doesn't happen that frequently any longer, but that's okay. Uh, but uh, yeah, I still remember walking in the street and catching somebody's glance and feeling, oh my God, at least it's a wonderful possibility. It doesn't have to go anywhere. Uh, the possibility alone is enough to give me pleasure for that moment. Uh, whether it, it is fulfilled or not is a different option altogether. So before we go, for people who are new to your works, who haven't read anything, where should they start? Oh, they should start with Call Me By Your Name. It's the easiest way to get into it. It is a book that is fundamentally quite easy. Mm -hmm. People find it sometimes that it takes too long for the two to get together. Mm. But I like the build up and I enjoyed it. I did enjoy it. Um, it was like a sort of a prolonged courtship, as it were. Mm. Uh, and that's also fun too. That has its own pleasures. Uh, and it, it's, it's a lovely story of a wonderful love affair, friendship, brotherhood. Mm. It could be any of those things, you know, because they've come so close to each other that um, it can happen sometimes only once in life. Mm. The other times are just imitations of that, as I say in another book. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Well, with that, Andre, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me, Stephen. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you.